0: Topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now, welcome Integrative Dieticians Allie Miller and her co host Becky Yu.
1: Welcome to episode 266 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Today, we are talking about why your A1C may be elevated. We will of course be covering blood sugar regulation with diet and carb control, but we're also going to dig into some of the more complex underlying mechanisms that can be driving elevations in blood glucose, including variability or getting really high highs and really low lows, stress, toxicity, and more, as well as providing some supplement strategy and food as medicine solutions.
2: Yes, this is a topic that's actually come up often for me in clinic, you know, some of my individuals that have been doing tight perfect ketogenic diet and, you know, following beyond of course the terrible recommendations of the American Diabetes Association, but doing more of a naturally nourished carb control approach yet still seeing fluctuations in their A1C. And I've talked on past episodes about my experience and connections of stress when wearing a CGM, but today we're going to really nerd out in some of the mechanisms and then also, like Becky said, provide some good strategy with supplementation, so what tools we could use if we know we're going into a time of infection um, and how that impacts blood sugar and so much more. So I think it's going to be jam-packed. And um, for those of you that are new to the Naturally Nourished podcast, or are not familiar with nutritional ketosis or maybe are a new diagnosed diabetic and want to kind of know where to start a couple episodes of reference for you because today we'll be going kind of next level on this conversation. Um, So episode 99 of the Naturally Nourished podcast Ketosis as Medicine talks about all of the research in how nutritional ketosis can actually drive remission or reversal of diabetes and it is the only thing that can. We know that use of insulin and Oral medications can aid in managing the condition, but true reversal can only be done with diet and weight loss as an intervention. So really cool information in there. We have tons of other episodes, of course, on ketosis, as well as our 12-week Food is Medicine ketosis class, which we will link in today's episode. So again, if this is a new diagnosis, that's where I would start, learning about how to understand what a carbohydrate food is, how to achieve carb control and eat on a low glycemic index and then get that balance of using both fat as fuel as well as glucose or sugar as fuel with a nutritional ketogenic approach. And then we also have episodes 206 and 207, which we put out last year. And this is a two part on diabetes. And 206 is called Diabetes Where We Went Wrong. And that's kind of talking about a lot of the wrong turns, a lot of the standard recommendations and how they don't yield clinical outcomes or sustained results. Uh, we talk about the dirty in funding dirtiness. I don't know the what would we call that. I just want to say grimy or dirty, but yeah, what's it called? Co- Corruption, I guess, within the funding of, you know, big organizations out there like the American Diabetes Association, funded by main pharmacological industries and makers of drugs. So they're of course going to be pushing eat more carbs to catch up with your insulin dose. Don't lower your insulin dose, which just doesn't make any sense. So 206 is diabetes where we went wrong. And then 207 is diabetes a functional approach, where we talk about how instead we would address a new
1: diagnosis or even a diagnosis that you've had for a while, but you really want to try a new approach. And then I'll also link that CGM episode that you mentioned, because I think a lot of that um, is going to be talked about in today's episode in terms of the underlying whys of, you know, seeing those elevations on a continuous glucose monitor.
2: Yes, so that is that. Before we get into things, updates for us. Uh, we are full stream into the Next Level Keto, so stay tuned if you miss this round. We will be probably announcing one like mid-January, early February, kind of to get us out of the woods from the holiday season and all of the things. Um, also, we will be launching, we've just started in the back uh, working on a 12-week ketosis Food as Medicine meal plan. So this has been a long coming ask from you guys. Uh, This will include weekly recipes as well as a grocery list and kind of a matrix, if you will, laying out throughout the day things to eat. And each week we'll have a weekly challenge. We're still playing with the format of that or whether you will get a weekly email with your weekly plan or you can purchase and get the PDF of everything all at once. Um, And whether we're going to be able to incorporate some form of a chat forum or A challenge um, where we can actually incentivize like rewards and things so stay tuned and um, it's something that we will be developing and will be coming and releasing in January again this will probably be our final announcement because I believe there's 10 or so tickets left at this time of listening but we do have that in-person event on December the 4th that is a Saturday it'll go from 3 until 9 p.m. it incorporates a four-course meal a two two-hour food is medicine cooking class breakout stations where we're going to be talking about flavor profiles it is a women's workshop we will talk gut adrenals hormones all of the things and it's in person so we're just super excited to have a day with community um there will be connection and gathering with other like-minded women i am sure of that uh we can't wait to meet you and see you all and give hugs and all the things also as things are coming to life with this event the swag bags are like so legit um So the tickets are $200 for this event and you get over $250 value in your swag bag. So, I mean, not that you should no show because I want you to come, but every bag is going to have a Branch Basics starter kit. If you missed the episode two weeks ago, uh, we talked with Allison, who is one of the founders of Branch Basics and how you need to clean out your toxic cleaning products. So everyone gets a starter kit. We have our friends from Santa Cruz Medicinal giving everyone a vanilla CBD tincture and some deep sleep caps to try out that we've been talking about so those are quite pricey so big value there and then let's see what else we have. We have fond bone broth. We're going to be doing a bone broth bar, but also you'll be getting a artisan jar to take home in your swag bag. Everyone's going to get a bottle of targeted strength probiotic from the naturally nourished supplement line, and really cute totes that are logoed. And I'm sure there'll be a couple other things thrown in at the end there. Um, so can't wait for that event. You can get tickets at Um, Because it's just a short-term link, it's kind of hard to find. So you have to search in the search box "workshop" or "women's workshop," and it'll come up on our website and you can get your tickets there. And I've got
1: a link right on the landing page actually at the very tippy top. If you just okay. scroll up to the, the header bar, you can just click through from there to make your life a little easier. Cool. Um, Speaking of Santa Cruz Medicinals, such a generous sponsor. Let's just have a word for them from this episode. Yes.
2: So Santa Cruz Medicinals makes CBD that is third-party tested for purity and toxicity. Um, they make formulas that actually can have a functional impact. So the world of CBD is quite vast, and often many of the products out there kind of grasp onto the buzz concept of CBD without giving a clinical dosage or having efficacy of a potency with cannabidiol. And cannabidiol can work with your neuroendocrine system and regulate inflammation as well as reduce anxiety. We know that CBD, actually, we didn't pull for today's episode, but I am sure that it is a powerful tool that can also help with dysregulation of glucose or dysglycemia because of its ability to modulate that HPA access, we'll talk about, of course, stress as a driver. So when we modulate that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal response, we see less cortisol output we see less epinephrine that helps to harness our blood sugar stability while aiding in pain management so they have some fabulous formulas that take things next level they have some really clean tinctures that just use mct um, really pure forms that get that pink phytopigment that antioxidant influence from coconut um, and you're going to get potency which can be quite high um, and there are 10,000 Milligram bottle, you can get actually 83 milligrams per tincture dropper, and or that might be the 20,000 bottle. I'm not sure. Always you want to look at the back and look at one milliliter equals how many milligrams when you're dosing. And the people at Santa Cruz Medicinal recommend doing a hundred milligram a day challenge as kind of a loading dose for a week to see if you notice efficacy in sleep, in pain, so generalized body aches. Um, also for anxiety and mood stability and in relaxation and then they take things next level by using their CBD in other synergistic formulas so they have their deep sleep caps this is the 6,000 milligram deep sleep cap which provides 50 milligrams of CBD per capsule and then has valerian and L-theanine in there so great to down regulate and get into that deep REM cycle of sleep they have the 7,500 milligram turmeric caps which is Quite a potent dose of CBD along with curcumin, which of course, very anti-inflammatory, great for muscle soreness or pain. They have their calm caps, which include um, adaptogenic mushrooms like lion's mane, ashwagandha, Um, L-tryptophan and L-theanine in there with the CBD and then magnesium caps, which have a blend of magnesium as well as recently I've been playing with their Epsom salt, which has essential oils of um, lemon balm in there and Epsom salt to get into that lymphatic system aiding with detox. And then CBD is infused in there for further pain support. When you go on over to scmedicinals.com, use RD, and you will save 15% on that order and you will get free shipping.
1: All right, so let's get right into it and just define off the cuff what hemoglobin A1C is. Or what specifically it measures? Because I think people get confused. They're like, oh, I had a high fasting glucose. Like, am I in big trouble? Do I have diabetes? Let's talk about yeah. A1C and how that's different.
2: Oral here on the other hand of the spectrum. Oh, I got my blood drawn, but I wasn't fasted. So I think my A1C is falsely uh-huh. elevated. Uh-huh. And I'm like, well, your lipids would be falsely sure. elevated yep. because you ate and you have fat in your bloodstream. But a1c is not going to be an acute marker it's more of a longer term it looks at two to three months of information and what it's looking at is actually how glycosylated or how coated in sugar your red blood cells are so we're looking at the viability of your red blood cell turnover which is about two to three months and then that percentage is going to be the percent of coating of sugar on your red blood cells. And so it will be more time specific or weighted, if you will, where the more recent weeks will have a higher impact. Um, but it is looking more over a longer period of time, whereas, yes, your fasting glucose could spike with a stressful morning or could be influenced by what you had the evening before. If you had a high-sugar meal, maybe you had a high-insulin response, you crashed your blood sugar in the middle of the night, and then your liver dumped sugar, you might wake a little bit higher on those types of mornings as well. But the A1C is really looking at more of an overview of a longer period of time. And just in the last decade, we started using it as a diagnostic criteria, used to be required to get two fasting blood sugars over um, 120 and looking at postprandial values being elevated as well and now a1c is used as diagnostic of pre-diabetes diabetes um, and then your level of control if you are a diabetic so we start to see diagnosis as early as 6%, kind of depends on the endocrinologist and the care provider. In some communities where diabetes runs rampant, they actually won't truly diagnose until 7 which is, I believe, very high and, and not appropriate. Um, and most practitioners that are more conservative will diagnose prediabetes as early as 56 So generally speaking, we recommend keeping your A1C at 5.4 or below.
1: Got it. Okay. And as we're addressing just other markers of of blood sugar assessment, let's talk through kind of the at home versus what you would go and get drawn, I guess. So the finger glucose check, oral glucose tolerance test, which we've talked about, at least in relation to pregnancy, Mm -hmm. um, CGM, and then glycomark, which we don't hear much about.
2: Yeah. And we use the glycomark in our cardiometabolic panel, which is available for purchase on the website. And I, well, I'll, I'll wait to talk about that. We'll kind of go in order from easiest to there, but it is one that you can have access to through our um, website under our lab section. And we do offer the A1C in our advanced metabolic panel. So we have two different panels that both could provide information on this metabolic syndrome, and we've selected to do the variants of the glycomark on the cardiometabolic to get a little bit more vast data. So... When we think of a glucometer, this is kind of the more common finger stick approach. Um, and generally speaking, when you're doing a finger stick check, um, there can be 10% variability to, um, of, this is looking at capillary versus a blood draw. Um, so there's a little bit of variability when you get your blood drawn and you get your glucose at that time. And that's where, yes, if you're fasted or not, usually it's that's going to be in a part of your comprehensive metabolic panel which also looks at like liver enzymes and markers of kidney health and some electrolyte values And um, that, if it's taken at a random time, isn't super valuable. The finger stick, because it's so convenient, provides us the ability to look at time-specific impacts of what would bring our blood sugar up. So often the first line of defense is if you get an A1C at 5.8 or 5.9, of course, the recommendation from Becky and I would be, you know, work on honing in on your carb control, bring your total carb intake to about 60 grams a day or less, and start to consider nutritional ketosis and we would also recommend you know you probably want to get a a glucometer if you're going to do nutritional ketosis you might go right away for the Keto Mojo which has the ability to look at both ketones in the blood and glucose levels and so we'll link that meter with a discount code in today's show notes as well but um, when you're looking at finger sticks, the best times to test would be postprandial, which would be after meal consumption. So generally we look at two hours postprandial. Um, you can look at one hour and two hour postprandial if you like, and you don't mind sticking yourself to see the total kind of bell curve action. But the idea is with a postprandial read for a non-diabetic, we like to get those values under 120 um, at the two hour mark. So if you start your lunch at noon at 2 PM, your blood sugar should be under 120. Now, if we're really wanting good data, we're going to want to also test prior to the lunch to know where our blood sugar started before the meal so we can see also the variability. So if we started with a blood sugar of 92 and then we went up to 112, that was a 20-point variability, um, which is... a on the higher end of what we'd like to see postprandial but yet you were under that 120 so you could be kind of overlooking a little bit of elevated trend and we'd like to instead see that two-hour window have a variability under 20 so that, that's kind of another thing to look at is the variability or the change from pre and post meal um, you can take a fasting glucose check which would be generally truly from your wake time of rise so not just meaning if you're fasting and not eating you know, maybe we should talk through, Becky, the difference of like taking ketones fasting mm-hmm. right before you break versus a fasting glucose because
1: we're looking at two different things. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. So the fasting glucose, typically we want that to be a 12-hour fasted. And that's what they're going to tell you if you're like going in for your annual labs for your doctor's office or... Um, doing one of our various cardiometabolic panels, um, you'd be doing a 12-hour fast and then taking that glucose, you know, whenever you get the draw done. So either 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or they might make you wait until 11. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. And if at home and doing a finger stick, I would do it closer to rise, mm-hmm. even, you know, so maybe not waiting the 12 hours. Or if you're getting up at 6 a.m. and you cut off eating at 8, you'd take it right at rise because you're screening for more of that dawn phenomenon. Mm-hmm or the impact of cortisol as your rise hormone spiking your glucose levels. And so we're really looking at that true rise. Whereas when we're testing ketones fasted, we don't want to test right first thing in the morning because that cortisol can interfere with ketone production. And so we prefer to test ketones right before breaking your fast. So like if you're eating like a 16-8, and um, you're getting up at 6 a.m., you still would wait to probably test your ketones till like noon or 11.30 a.m. because you really want to see your body. It's, it's awoken. It's regulated its stress response from that rise hormone. That cortisol cascade has come down a little bit, hopefully. And now we're seeing as your body making ketones as you're deeper into that fast. So a little mm-hmm. bit of a different thought process there, I would say for sure. Yes. Yep. I think good
1: to distinguish because we always get that question among our keto class.
2: Yes. And then you can also take a randomized finger stick or or glucose test if you're just feeling a symptom of high or low blood sugar. So if you're dealing with like shakiness or you're dealing with um, severe brain fog or um, dynamics in nausea, um, that would be a time to maybe then check your glucose levels and see, especially for someone that's like... Reactive hypoglycemic mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that to see how low they are truly dropping. Sure. Yeah. And then oral glucose tolerance test. Now, a lot of docs love running this to really like test capacity. And they'll say, once your A1C is up, you know, don't even worry about finger sticks. Just do an oral glucose tolerance test, which, as we've talked about in episodes in, you know, the, I believe, second trimester is when that's usually done around yeah, week they 20. Do like week 26 or so, 26 okay. to 28. Typically. Okay. So maybe even getting into that third yeah, right, I don't know. Right second, before. third transition, end of, yeah. End
1: of the second.
2: Yes. Um. So you know, I really don't. I'm not a big proponent of, especially someone that's doing a lower carb diet, doing an oral glucose tolerance test to indicate much, because you're drinking liquid that contains 75 grams of glucose, and liquid is like a naked carb, which we totally tell you guys to not do, because we know when you pair a carbohydrate with protein and fat that blunts the glycemic impact. So again, recommendations for new diabetics individuals that are starting to see their a1c go up the first thing is to understand what a carb is and bring your carb total down the second thing is like stella will tell you no naked carbs and so anytime you're having a carb like an apple we'd want you to have that with an ounce of brie cheese or with two tablespoons of pistachio nuts because that's going to blunt, blunt that glycemic impact in an oral glucose tolerance test, you're drinking a concentrated naked carb more than I want you to consume in the whole day. So, um, you know, you are going to see your insulin response. And if we're really assessing a level of insulin insufficiency in a diabetic that has had stressed pancreatic function, there is yes, of course, some information we can gather from that. Um, they're going to test your blood glucose levels prior and then, um, every 60 minutes so two more times after you consume that so you have to have two hour window for this panel um the uh, glucola gl- gl- glucola is that what it's called uh-huh. glucola is the standard farm big pharma kind of product that most doctor's offices would have or they would have you know in the hospital facilities and such and we've talked
1: about again in past episodes the toxins that are in them it's got brominated vegetable oil in it yeah no thanks plus a bunch of colors and dyes preservatives and things that don't belong in your body they have like a dye free and bvo free one but it still has all of the preservatives not great potassium sorbate and so much more so generally
2: speaking not a fan of oral glucose tolerance because i don't believe it's worth the toxicity and the stress to the body to do that Instead, I'd prefer you use the, the finger check um, of the glucometer and maybe Keto-Mojo as your tool. And then in comes CGM. Now, CGM, like Becky said, she'll link that episode, that stands for Continuous Glucose Monitor. And so... This is going to be looking at continual data for two-week windows. So you wear the CGM. And also, we'll link the uh, YouTube video on that. Yeah, 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 So the YouTube video, we do an unpacking. I show you how to put it on. We talk about some of our days and troubleshoot our data. What's beautiful about a CGM is you're getting ongoing data for two weeks. So you're seeing what's happening while you're sleeping. You're seeing what's happening both pre and post-prandial at those one hour, two hour, two and a half hour marks. So you're not continuing to be a pincushion stick in yourself, but you're Mm -hmm. able to see that ongoing information. And then what I really love is you're able to see trends in your body, as well as responses to stress, as well as responses to exercise. It's just so much data that you have access to, to really take that like N equals one um, experiment. Impact of making changes in your body or making changes in your supplement strategy. So, Becky and I have shared, you know, we've seen good outcomes with things like Calm and Clear or GABA Calm at times of high stress. Um, We've seen individuals that they'll take two berberine at their dinner with their half cup starchy vegetable and have a variability within eight points. But then if they don't take the berberine boost, they have a variability of 32 points. So one looks diabetic, one doesn't when they're using the correct supplementation strategy with their diet strategy. Um, So CGM is really a cool thing to consider as well. Uh, We've talked about NutriSense on the podcast before. We will link them. um, And you can go on my unique page where you can get one time use of meter versus subscribing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a really great thing to consider. If you are considering doing it, I would highly advise you purchase a three 20-minute pack with Becky so you can troubleshoot your data or uh, look at the next next level keto where you can really go in and understand the information because it can be quite overwhelming. Sure, They do have a great support team, but... You know, taking it
1: next level for sure. Yeah. Okay. And then what's this glycomark? So different than an A1C, uh, but potentially quite useful as well. Yeah. So
2: this is going to look at a specific molecule in the blood called 1,5-anhydroglucitol. Um, and hydroglucitol, Um, and this reliably measures peaks in our blood sugar over the most recent one or two week period. So it's cumulative like the A1C, but not as long of time as the two to three months. Um, So this can be really great to kind of hone in. And like i said it measures peaks very reliably so it is possible to have a completely normal a1c but still have high blood sugar levels and the glycomark test can really give us that information especially in individuals that have unstable blood sugar or hyperglycemia or reactions again to stress or reactive hypoglycemia where they have too high of an insulin response Um, This does help us to combine with A1C to really understand improving or worsening control. Um, I was looking at their website and found a a cool kind of like case study example. So there was a 45-year-old obese male, he had an A1C of 5.0, so it sounds like perfect glucose control. And this was deemed perfect by most endocrinologists his glycomark was 4.9 and abnormal is any value less than 8 micrograms per milliliter so about half of that normal range so he was definitely off and so that indicated significant glycemic variability likely due to after meal blood sugar levels reaching above 180 and so even though he was hitting 180 his total A1C average because he was also dipping low Mm -hmm. in his blood sugar again this is that variability that we're looking at which means like the highs and the lows if you drew an average mean, the mean is what the A1C is looking at. And so the mean or average could look normal when there's still our dynamic stress responses. And by stress, I'm not saying stress, mental, emotional. I'm talking about the blood sugar dynamics mm-hmm. being a stressor to the body in this scenario. Um, and those uh, variability occurrences can really create um, some negative health effects. And so this does uh, work really well, again, in people that have reactive dynamics. You could get this type of information also with a CGM because you're going to be watching the real-time variability but this is just a one-time test so it's pretty easy and um there's interpretation within the world of 10 to 31 of being the ideal glycomark
1: value okay and that is included in that cardiometabolic panel that we have on the website i will link that and that one also includes a fasting insulin so that would also aid in the interpretation of that data yeah
2: Yeah, and let's just talk a little bit about fasting insulin before we move on because we're doing all the testing talk. Um, So fasting insulin, again, is one of those that we generally think the lower the better. Generally, less than 8 is ideal but when fasting insulin levels drop below two or even below three depending on the individual um, in the cardiometabolic panel we also do look at leptin levels which is really helpful because remember leptin is the reason that we bring in carb cycling and this will connect with the insulin when the insulin is so low that means that it's not really being employed or, or utilized because of likely chronic low carb intake so a lot of our individuals that are doing tight keto and don't have a lot of weight to lose, their fasting insulin will, you know, maybe maybe they had prediabetes at a point, they lost the weight, they kept on the diet plan, so their fasting insulin went from 22 down to 15, down to eight, down to five, and then three years later, they're dipping into the twos and threes. Well, at that juncture, when insulin drops that low, we can actually also see that trending with low leptin. And leptin, again, is the hormone that regulates satiety. It plays a big role with stress regulation and HPA access because it crosses and docks to the hypothalamus, which tells the body basically that it's fed and safe or nourished. Um, And that then can support the parasympathetic function, which is all that regulatory stuff, our hormone management, our metabolism, and so much more. And the connection there is we do carb cycling for individuals that run low leptin because that does surge or provide a little bit of insulin response. So like anything in the body, um, you know, too much control, too much of that kind of white knuckling um, and not adapting as our body is adapting with our supplement strategy or our diet or our lifestyle can often put us in an area of imbalance, even if those same interventions or tools were the things that drove the good outcomes in the beginning.
1: Yes. A lot of sense.
2: Yeah. So too low is not good either. Right. And and even like you can see really low A1Cs in chronic alcoholics. So again, it's not like that is on its own mm-hmm. an indicator of optimal health. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So like the fasting insulin and the um, A1C and just a regular old fasting glucose, those could be things that likely your doctor should be ordering at least, you know, the A1C, but you can ask for in that annual yearly physical, just as kind of a spot check of wellness. And then if you want to get more advanced, we've given you all of the (laughs) information. Um, Okay. So when we're talking about assessing postprandial versus fasting blood sugar levels, let's talk about what the primary mechanisms that can impact these are.
2: Okay, so again, if we're saying fasting, like meaning at rise, like in the standard world of of blood sugar um, tests, we're really looking for a kind of breezed over it, but it's that dawn phenomenon, which is the impact of if you follow your cortisol cascades. Um, cortisol is going to peak in the morning, and then it slowly cascades like a little L curve throughout the day. And so, when we're looking at our dawn phenomenon impact, that's our stress hormone of cortisol being too elevated and that creating, because it's a glucocorticoid steroid, a blood sugar spike. And um, so for individuals that have a high fasting blood sugar, we're often thinking that they have some form of cortisol dysregulation um, or have excessive cortisol output in general. So we might look at the NeuroHormone Complete Plus, where they do a four-point salivary collection of cortisol We would be looking at in this individual their um, sleep routine and what's happening while they sleep. So maybe looking at like a sleep study test, make sure that they're not dealing with sleep apnea and that they're getting good deep quality sleep. Um, We'd also be ensuring that They are taking something that would mitigate that cortisol peak. And so we think of phosphatidylserine as a very good tool here. This is in the calm and clear. And I think that was your big aha, Becky. Was it that you had better CGM support while sleeping or a better fasting
1: glucose when you took the calm and clear at bed? It was while sleeping. I'm um, okay. into fasting, though, so both I impacted both, and that was just from one capsule. Of yeah, come and clear up bed. Yeah, so it can have quite an impact um, getting that phosphatidylserine in there.
2: So I would say I would generally recommend if you know you have elevated fasting blood sugar to probably do two mm. or three, um, but you know one might even do the trick because you also have that L-theanine in there and you get those B vitamins. So we look at stress response, we look at quality of sleep, and then right first thing in the morning. Um, We're also looking at like what are you doing to stimulate potential blood sugar spike like coffee right away off the bat. Could you add CBD or do CBD prior to your coffee and add some fat to your coffee so you don't get as much adrenaline or switch it out for tea. Those are all types of things we consider and even as I mentioned that last evening meal can impact your fasting blood sugar and for some people Again, it's not always less is more. So of course if you indulge in dessert and wine and and kind of blow it out like a big date night, you're gonna have probably an elevated fasting blood sugar because your liver is prioritizing first detoxifying the alcohol. Then you might have a carb crash because you put out too much insulin at that response to the chocolate cake or whatever. Your blood sugar crashed. Then your body didn't worry about the low blood sugar because it was detoxing. And then your blood sugar spiked up because your liver dumped a bucket of blood sugar to try to compensate for that low. That's where we get those uncomfortable, sweaty nights of sleep and thrashing in the bed. Um, And so that would be kind of that that dual impact of alcohol and sweets Mm -hmm. and how that could give you an elevated fasting. But on the other hand of the spectrum, I've had individuals that needed to add an evening snack. Actually, again, some individuals that have a good body weight that were doing extended fasting and the fasting itself was too stressful on their body, and they did better. Actually, believe it or not, you know, having um, some like sprouted almonds, like a fat and fiber combination, or um, n- like the nutso nut butter on um, you know a sprouted um, resistant carb, um, or doing like plantains with coconut oil where they're staying maybe around 15 grams of carbs, but they're getting a hefty amount of fat. And I've seen individuals have much more managed blood sugar levels versus trying to cut off at at that 6am. Sure. And that's
1: where the like N equals one kind of of the, um, CGM really comes into play of like understanding and being able to kind of tweak and, and modulate versus you're not going to go in and get your fasting blood sugar run multiple times.
2: Right. And totally, yep. and, and that whole, like, an equals one that we keep saying is basically a self-experiment, right? And when we do that, we generally like to make a change in three-day increments because it could be a fluke, right? So you'd want to kind of test that, cutting off your eating at 6, 8, 6 p.m., excuse me, for three days in a row, see what happens with your fasting blood sugar, adding an evening snack at 8.30 p.m. for three days in a row mm-hmm. see how that impacts. And so you can really look in these kind of time stamp, or, or blocks,
1: if you will, the behavior change and the impact of it. Okay. And so that was all fasting. Let's talk now about the things that can impact the postprandial blood sugar.
2: Yeah. So this is kind of more of the classic concept of diabetes and the idea of we're looking at the amount of carbs consumed how responsive our insulin production, release, and sensitivity is. So we generally think, when postprandial levels are up, that there was excessive carb intake and that there's insulin resistance, meaning that the individual, over time, of stressing that insulin glucose response has um, overburdened the pancreas. Generally, we'll see hyperinsulinemia before we see hypo, meaning too much insulin. And that's where, again, in my example of that woman with her fasting insulin, it started up, you know, in the high 20s or 30s. So um, with insulin resistance, we're often putting out too much insulin, but the receptor site is not sensitized or is not responding to the stimulus, which creates overproduction of insulin. And remember, insulin excess drives body fat storage and excess body fat drives more insulin resistance. So we know as our receptors have higher fat accumulated around them, it's like the insulin is bouncing off versus really being able to make that lock and key mechanism and then we can also see postprandial reads going up with individuals that have low muscle um, low muscle tone low muscle mass because we get that tissue uptake in our musculature so we can also see on the other end of the spectrum walking after a higher carb meal could bring your blood sugar down pretty remarkably and also activity factor would have a role and that'd be Mm -hmm. kind of that same thing of how you move following consumption so we typically say you know like Taking a walk during your lunch hour would be really important. I love when kids actually get recess after their lunch for that right. reason to kind of run off some of that because otherwise we call it the postprandial slump when you're dealing with individuals that have had high excessive carbs and then they have that high insulin response and then they're like, really tired sure. and, and they go
1: really stim hyper and then they crash. Yep. Alright, so beyond diabetes or some of these drivers of, of blood sugar impact, what about those people who are like eating a perfectly carb controlled diet in theory, doing all the right things, but still seeing an elevated A1c?
2: Yeah, so it's really interesting to acknowledge that A1C can be a biomarker beyond insulin resistance and carb control. Um, and, you know, I've already kind of alluded to the stress story, which we'll nerd out on a little bit further, but I think what's often overlooked is infections. Mm-hmm. So, gum disease, actually, there is a really strong trend of gum disease driving up A1C. Um, there was a study that they looked at patients um, who had received periodontal care and they had experienced a significant reduction in their hemoglobin A1c. Um, and this was in the Journal of Clinical um, Periodontology, periodontology, I suppose, right? <laughs> um, so they were observed for six months and the results had um, shown that the better oral hygiene helped their metabolic control by a 05 percent so that's pretty remarkable if you were sitting at a six percent you got down to from the almost diagnostic diabetes to non-diabetic at that 5.5 out of technically the pre-diabetes world or if you started at the 5.6 and you went down to 5.1 you went into really ideal glycemic control so a half of a percent specifically impacted in the study control that had the intervention of the gum health improvement Um, So that's pretty wild. So right away, I start to think about like, okay, beat the bloat. Um, Because, well, there's really good duality in the beat the bloat cleanse in the sense that we're getting the benefit of the berberine boost, which berberine itself is an oral hypoglycemic. So we're going to see outcomes similar to metformin in response to A1C lowering as well as fasting glucose and postprandial glucose, all of the values because it will lower your blood sugar at all times well relative to the time of using and taking the berberine Um, and so i think that that's a really powerful tool and if you're doing the beat the bloat cleanse you're getting four berberine boosts daily often taken with your meals so like two at breakfast two at dinner and that could be really a great way to also right away kill off the bacteria imbalance in the body as we're kind of cleansing and um, uh, plowing the gut, if you will, resetting that microbiome all the way from the oral, all the way through the gastrointestinal tract. Um, And then we also have in there the GI cleanup, which has those bacteriophages, which basically eat away at bacterial overgrowth or imbalance. There's the herbal immune in there, which really great seasonal support with the oil of oregano and the lemon balm. And we know that some of those herbs like the lemon balm and sage have really good stress support. So that's a little bit of a dual impact of the blood sugar response as well. And then um, also in that formula, we incorporate ultimate detox, which aids in breaking into those biofilms um, or basically the inner network of bacteria. And a lot of the resistant bacteria we see in oral cavity can be overlooked. Um, And a lot of times with healthy individuals,
1: we really need to go in and do a deep gut cleanse to get at that. Sure. And then things that we could do kind of on an oral level Mm -hmm. as well. Um, I know biocidin has a really good kind of herbal oral rinse. There's also Perio wash that I often recommend to clients.
2: Yeah, we can link both of those in the Amazon store. So the um, LSF is the um, herbal blend that I like from Biocidin. And that has bilberry extract, noni, milk thistle, echinacea, um, two forms of echinacea, golden seal, um, which with our burberry boost, you're getting golden thread in there as well. So you're getting really good immune impact there um and then there is um, black walnut hall and leaf a a bunch of herbal botanicals tea tree oil lavender oregano and um it's you can squirt it on your toothbrush after you've brushed your teeth and really work that into the gums or you can use it in your water pick if you have a water pick that would be another really good application to really get deep into where the bacteria can get into the gum area and then that also makes me think of oil pulling sure Um, So oil pulling is a great way to stimulate the lymphatic system and um, really uh, work circulatory function into the gums, especially if you have like receding gums, often that's due based on gum infection. So the oil pulling where you use like a tablespoon of coconut oil, you're getting that caprylic acid, which is antifungal and antimicrobial. And then you're pulling that through your um, periodontal area by basically swishing like a... It's um, a so great sound effect. You're not going gar- <laughs> <laughs> try it better. Um, but so you're kind of like squirreling up your cheeks um, and you're just pulling it literally through your teeth, essentially. Mm-hmm. And you'd, you would be um, spitting out that excess coconut oil. But a great thing to do while you're washing your hair in the shower. Don't spit it down the drain. Right. Um, spit it in like a tissue and then toss it. Um but that can be a great ritual to do at least a couple times a week. And then, yes, we'll link the Perio Wash, which has CoQ10 in there as well as Tea Tree. That's more of like a um, mouthwash, if you will. So, that would be also done like after brushing teeth. And then I just started using, I took Stella to an awesome biological dentist that wasn't mask mandating, and um, I'll actually put her, um, Joan Chef. I'll put her for any of you that are in the Austin-ish area and want a good referral, we can put her in the show notes because I think she's pretty rad. Um, But she got me hooked on this Pristine Protocol, and this is also, I think, a Texas company. Um, We'll link this um, from our Amazon store as well, and it is an oral care system, so it's like a three-part system. And, um, I have someone, I have been someone that's dealt with pretty resistant candida yeast and I have had pretty, um, recurrent like thrush. Like even when like bowels are rock and roll, I've like perfectly formed stools and it seems like my gut's intact, but the upper oral area is hard to kind of tackle. Um, it's a three part system and their rinse, they use their oral rinse first thing in the morning before you brush. And the big idea is, and you like read the back and it'll say like, why would you drink water or take supplements after you have all that bacteria surge while you're uh-huh. sleeping, which we've talked about in gut episodes how bacteria that's imbalanced is often nocturnal. Right. And so it does surge while you sleep. So like why would you take a gulp of water and take all that down mm-hmm. into your body? Yeah. You should literally first thing in the morning be using – it's a hydrogen peroxide-based oral rinse, and it has like aloe and something else that's mucilaginous. And it's really interesting because it makes like a thick foam – Um, And I literally have not had to tongue scrape like a fifth of the amount Mm -hmm. that I was tongue scraping since I started using this rinse. So it really does get into those biofilm spaces. And then you spit that out and then they have a really beautiful, um, clean toothpaste that has a lot of the botanicals as well. And then uh, a rinse that you'd follow with, which is a different rinse
1: than that. It's like a a whitening. I I don't use that one as much, but I use step one and two daily. Cool. I'll link all of that in the Amazon store. And I think all the more... Um, relevant especially with you know spending how many months now with, for some people having to mask right um, oh. i'm seeing a huge rise in gum disease and yes. oral infections and you know, just noticing like worsened breath and things like that can be a sign of, of something going on in your oral microbiome. And I would extend that with A1C to just systemic yeast or dysbiosis as well. I've certainly seen that as a driver of elevated A1C. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I have notes on H. pylori, so let's skip over and go to that. Yeah, let's talk about Um, that. But I would connect the dots I love that, Becky. Yes. I think masking is, of course, a huge risk factor. So for those of you um, that are listening that are having to mask still at work or your children are at school, this is something to be really pro vigilant about, um, getting them on a non-toxic daily rinse that also fights against virus, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. So super cool. I mean, this is things that I, I'm constantly telling people in clinic travel i'm still a huge proponent of that x clear which is that nasal saline combined with the grapefruit seed extract and the xylitol um, we can link that as well that just you know rinses your nasal passage really um, but uh, that and then also you know the idea of having a good quality botanical mouth rinse that could actually fight against virus and bacteria i think all the better and, and there's been a lot of studies actually mm-hmm. on doing oil of oregano, or hydrogen peroxide on its own as being powerful players. Sure. Okay. Tell me about the H. pylori pylori connection. Yeah. So gastrointestinal infection and abnormalities are associated with higher levels of A1c. So um, patients with H. pylori, heliobacter pylori infection, are at a higher risk of having an uncontrolled blood glucose level. There was a study that looked at 2,000 participants and they looked at those that had long-term H. pylori infection, and they saw a higher A1c and also decreased insulin secretion, which is in- interesting, I thought. Um, so the research suggested that screening for infection with regular monitoring of blood glucose would be a important component, especially to newly diagnosed diabetics, um, to rule out. Because unfortunately, H. pylori testing is just not done enough. And I can't tell you how many patients come to me with diagnosis of gastritis, and they did an upper scope, and there was no biopsy for H. pylori, no Uh breath test, and no blood test or stool test for H. pylori. Um, So you can do it as a simple stool test. That's the, honestly, I think most pleasant. I know some of you are like, what, collecting your stool? But I think more so than drinking the solution and uh, doing the breath test. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I haven't done the breath test myself. Um, so I can't speak to that. I know that that solution is less toxic than like an oral glucose tolerance test, but still it's not tasty and it's still the timing thing. And you breathe into the bag first, then you drink the solution, and then you breathe into the bag after. And um, they're looking at the presence of the H. pylori. And often that's how a SIBO test will be done when they are looking at methane and hydrogen as well. Um, so that's one way to assess for the H. pylori. You can also look in stool antigen or if you're doing a scope, and you know you have gastritis, you should ask for a biopsy to confirm um, because it just is very prevalent and um, it can play such a dynamic role in blood sugar response. Um, in fact, I am putting together an entire episode on H. pylori, so stay tuned for that. And, you know, I would also start right off the bat with the Beat the Bloat um, bundle, which is those four supplements I just recently talked about. And then with h pylori specifically we bring in brocco detox at um you know three to four capsules daily that sulforaphane has such a powerful impact that we've seen specific to h pylori infection so consumption of sprouts in general would be great like radish sprouts and broccoli sprouts uh cellular antioxide bring in if there's known h pylori to help to get into those biofilms with the NAC and acetylcysteine in there and then high dose vitamin c has also been shown in research to aid in treating uh, H. pylori infection. And that's a dose of like three to five grams. So I generally, during the six-week gut cleanse, would have someone with H. pylori taking BioC Plus at three capsules. And then when I shift out a formula, like I'll often add in GI Reset for H. Mm -hmm. pylori because you just want to hit them with the big guns because it's basically an aggressive natural, or a triple antibiotic with a PPI. Right. And so I like to give my patients the opportunity of doing the most aggressive natural approach. So I will do the beat the blow. I layer in the GI reset. Then I go and the GI reset runs out and I level up the the vitamin C by adding a scoop of buffered C on top of the already what they're getting at that point, one point eight grams from their capsules of BioC+. And um, really, kind of throw the kitchen sink at them, but we'll we'll talk
1: about that in an entire episode. Yeah, and I imagine you do GI lining at some point, of course. Yes, <laughs> post, <laughs> um, especially to um, replace that that PPI. But it sounds like we've got a whole episode coming. I'm excited. Yes. So, so basically, though, there is a lot of research
2: specific okay. to H. Pylori, and of course, research that extends with Candida and mm-hmm. elevated A1C. So I think for a lot of you listeners, that would be a big aha moment of like, if you have any other indicators, let's link the um, dysbiosis and candida quiz in the the show notes. So if you're like, is this me? You can take this quiz. If you fail it, just go right into a good gut cleanse and see how that impacts your blood sugar metabolism. All right. So sleep. Back to, yes, sleep. All right. <laughs> I'm scrolling my notes because I'm like, well, went past the gut. Okay, yes. So sleep, I kind of mentioned it relative to that dawn phenomenon and that rising fasting blood sugar level impact with sleep quality. Um, but there definitely is a lot of research around the world of severity of sleep issues. And um, we see this with insomnia and sleep apnea, so especially with the apnea, when you're getting those pauses of of breathing and and, um, shortness of breath throughout this process, that creates a pretty big stress response, which can drive uncontrolled blood glucose levels. There are studies that show when you address your sleep disturbances in patients that have had difficulty controlling their blood sugar, this led to better results in the A1C, and so we always want to think of the lifestyle elements and, and the supplement strategy, especially before going on those um, very scary uh, sleep medications, which can really drive dementia and really accelerate the aging process in the body. So we're thinking of things like the Santa Cruz medicinal's Ebsom salt soak would be mm-hmm. a beautiful thing. We're thinking of, Gentle exercise, like maybe foam rolling or stretching, um, getting into lymphatic release, um, meditation, whether that's seated meditation or prayer, or whether that is done in a light yoga, um, whether we're doing essential oils within that. But I always say, like, having a second stimulus can be beneficial because you're basically sleep training like you are a child the more ritual you create your brain and your body start to learn this is the time to mellow out so for sure we want to keep separated from the blue light in the evening and if must use we want to mitigate that with the blue blockers um, and then melatonin and calm and clear would be the two kind of supplement considerations here Melatonin has actually been able to show a beneficial role in controlling blood glucose in both animal and human studies. And um, it has an impact on the expression level of glucose transporter type 4 or the GLUT4 gene. Um, And so this is often going to be impacted by um, individuals that have pineal issues. And the pineal gland is where we make the melatonin. Um, So in those individuals, they tend to have glucose intolerance and insulin resistance. When you bring in something like our sleep support, and you're getting the blend of the herbal compounds with the melatonin. They're going to get better function on the gene that aids in the glucose transport, so better blood sugar control overall.
1: Okay. And we'll link um, episode 249. We talk about sleep and melatonin. That's our most recent episode on sleep. If that sounds like you and why your A1C might be elevated.
2: And I would say start with the calm and clear, Mm -hmm. probably at like the two to three at bed. And if that doesn't do the trick, then bring in the sleep support kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because for many people like Becky, um, who just needs that one calm and clear, I'm the one on the other end who (laughs) takes the the two to three calm and clear plus the sleep support often. Um, You know, it just depends. And some people do notice a little bit of that fogginess from the melatonin. But as we talked about in that episode 249, the benefits of the antioxidant effect and cancer-fighting effect, I think that it's definitely one worth seeing how you respond because I think the the benefits outweigh – the concern and I've always said you know if you're using sleep support daily you might want one day a week that you rotate off um but again it's kind of a, a cost to benefit influence and um I always say if you need a pineal reset um it's an interesting phrase to say a pineal reset <laughs> um pineal gland um, reset that you just need to spend a night under the stars true and um you need to just kind of bathe without um do it a screen detox and that'll be an ample reset for your whole hpa axis and enough to say okay i know what day is i know what night is my body's ready
1: Time change, as of recent, can do some of that, too. It feels, yeah. It feels good. It has felt good, for sure. <laughs> All right. Um, so another kind of in this world of, of stressors to the body, um, another cause could be chronic inflammation. So let's talk about that, kind of the chicken and egg with A1C.
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, when we're looking at individuals that have an elevated C-reactive protein, which is a marker that we would use as an assessment for inflammation in general, We do know that there is a strong correlation of those that have elevated CRP and um, those that have an elevated A1C compared to those that have a normalized CRP won't often have as elevated of an A1C. Um, So when we're looking at lowering our glycosylated hemoglobin and we're looking at addressing the root cause, one big thing we could do is bring down inflammation because inflammation itself, let's say for instance, recovering from a surgery, you're going to run higher blood sugar. Um, If you are ill, um, so you're dealing with inflammation from a virus, um, it's the flu, it's COVID. Either way, likely blood sugar levels are going to be elevated based on that inflammatory response. Um, and so regulating inflammation is definitely a root cause. And for some people that have, again, the perfect diet, but are over exercisers that are constantly tearing up their bodies, doing all the marathons and the, you know, more addictive overriding the nose that the body's yelling at them. Mm -hmm. That's what we'll often see over time is their A1C starts, their A1C starts to creep following that CRP. And they were really just kind of over-muscling or ignoring the feedback from their body saying, hey, help, I'm tearing, I need repairing time, I need some downtime." Um, and so the first thing I think of with chronic inflammation, and of course if you're someone dealing with hip pain, knee pain, tendon issues, then you already have that yell of inflammation in your body and, and likely want to A, feel more comfortable in your body, but B, get that CRP down because that then can drive cardiovascular risk factor as we know. And as we know, the whole cardiometabolic with the A1C, that follows. So um, using maybe our anti-inflammatory bundle um, could be an intro approach here. So that's going to be the trifecta of the EPA DHA extra, giving us a potent EPA dosage per capsule. So you're getting... 710 milligrams i believe it is per capsule of epa dha extra Um, so really easy to achieve that 2 gram epa which is the primary anti-inflammatory we think of the dha as more of the brain support and fetal brain development Um, so using that as a tool at two to three capsules daily would be a, a big hit there and also support bringing down triglycerides which we see trending with elevated a1c there is also in there the super turmeric, which is giving a potent dose of curcuminoids and a very bioavailable delivery paired with turmeric oil and also with delta tocotrienols, which have really fabulous research on antioxidant capacity and heart health. And then um, and the super turmeric is the one that I kind of liken more to like an Aleve. Like this is the one that I would take for migraine or this is the one that I would take for... Um, Will be another
1: good example because people always want a distinguishable sure. from inflammation yeah, yeah. and super turmeric. Like period pain. I mean, yeah, I cramp would go pain. for both. But mm-hmm. um, the super for, yeah, a headache, um, an acute injury or, or mm-hmm. something causing pain, um, or yeah, period cramps.
2: Yep, those would be the big ones. And right, it could be like a back injury. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then when it starts to become system-wise or tendon-wise or joint-wise is when we want to bring in the inflammasome because inflammasome has the proteolytic enzymes. And so the proteolytic enzymes, those seropeptidases basically help to ensure that you're not getting uh, fibric buildup or um, tissue malformation in the recovery. So like inflammasome is always like my post-surgical For the tissue repair and super turmeric is the post-surgical for the pain management. Um, So if it's more just pain without a big tissue involvement, then I'd go super turmeric where if you know that there's tissue recovery, like a torn tendon or um, we just had a baby, something like that, we'd really want that in as well. And that's usually an addition to Mm -hmm. super turmeric versus an instead of, would you kind of agree with that? Like super turmeric is like first line of
1: defense. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a, Good layer, like if you're seeing a chronically elevated CRP, you've been taking the turmeric, I would add on the inflammazine for sure.
2: Yeah, and especially if we're connecting back to cardiovascular mm-hmm. health, like LP little a, um, lipoprotein particle A, which looks at the stickiness factor in the blood and blood clot risk. Um, we know that the um, peptidases in the inflammazine can also bring down that LP little a. So, definitely a good cross impact. And again, it's that's because it's working on the tissue to prevent the buildup. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mention Cell Antiox. Um, you want to touch on Cell Antiox? That's in the bundle. So the bundle is EPA, DHA Extra, Super Turmeric, and Cellular Antiox. And then Inflammazine would be like a separate
1: item in there. Yes, yep. The Cellular Antiox, that's the um, NAC and glutathione with a little bit of B6 in there for activation um, blend. And that is a fabulous tool, especially I've seen it very helpful with um, inflammation in terms of like arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, yes um, or other kind of systemic inflammation that we just can't get down. We especially use it like with our autoimmune population, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, but a fabulous tool kind of across the board for everyone, um, dealing with any type of inflammation. And, and, you know, also we've talked about it in light of pandemic and kind of all of the things, immune health, um, across the board. Respiratory function, Mm -hmm.
2: huge, huge in the respiratory world. So that's one that, like if Steli is sick, I'll just open one of those up with raw and filtered honey and Bio-C Plus capsule. And she gets one one of those a couple times through the day. And that really works as an expectorant mm-hmm. and breaks up that mucus and
1: phlegm too. Yeah. Cool. All right. And then diet Food. wise, in terms of um, an anti-inflammatory diet, I think this is where keto could really shine for this individual who's experiencing both elevated A1C and an elevated C-reactive protein. And maybe going more toward like The Mediterranean-esque keto where they're bringing wild caught fish in at least three times per week, um, doing an abundance of herbs, spices, those anti-inflammatory like ginger, turmeric, garlic all the things yeah so
2: i think also right because this is where keto could get you wrong where you're eating tight carb control um but it's dirty keto and you're getting high omega-6 proteins instead of grass-fed pasture-raised then that could throw Mm -hmm. you know your inflammation up which could interfere with your a1c so definitely the omega-3s in the wild caught fish is huge and then that's the extension of pasture-raised grass-fed they're gonna have higher of those omega-3 fatty acids and um I was just over at Becky's and Byron was making a Korean breakfast and um, Brady was like, so funny eating it. He's like, oh, Byron, did you put like tiny slices of garlic in here too? And then he's like, he's like naming all the flavors, like each bite. Pickled ginger. Yeah. Yeah. Then he's like, did I just get some ginger in there? It was so great. And, you know, it's like, so I think... In, again, that Mediterranean keto or Korean keto, um, you know, whenever we're looking kind of more beyond the standard American diet and we're getting more ethnic Mm -hmm. flavors, so like Indian food is a great thing to consider here. We're getting all that turmeric. Like a butter chicken would be fabulous for this. Um, So thinking of really using a lot of herb seasonings and spices to boost that anti-inflammatory effect is key. And then I would definitely say that if you have a stubborn A1C and CRP, that that would be something to really look at the MRT test, um, the mediator release test, which looks at that 170 foods and chemicals and identifies in your body what is your kryptonite. So it might be something that would otherwise be optimal for health, um, but in your body, your immune system has deemed it as a foreign invader, and so you're having
1: an inflammatory response, which in turn would interfere with your A1C. Sure. Okay anemia as the driver of, of A1C. And I would say like nutrient deficiencies in general, but you've probably got that. In yeah. Here too.
2: Yeah. You know, um, and I didn't nerd out too much because I think we have that. I didn't link the insulin resistance episode, but we can. That mm-hmm. was way okay. back. And that notes, you know, like the vitamin K connection, which I, I'll, I'll touch on in a moment. But Anemia was the most marked nutritional deficiency so both iron and vit- and vitamin B12 deficiency anemia because basically the idea is if you are running lower in your red blood cells your hemoglobin and your hematocrit you're going to have a higher A1C because you're going to have dysfunctional red blood cell function mm-hmm. and so the idea is that you know the, the severity of the anemia could greatly impact your level of your A1C um just because of that glycosylation because of the red blood cell turnover or formation um so they there was a study where they looked at patients um to help them reach normal levels of a1c once they identified that these a1c individuals were anemic um they did iron um, transfusions um and the other population got 100 milligrams of iron orally which is quite high um for three months they probably had some serious constipation but Yeah, um, but um, after treatment, their A1C had a statistically significant reduction. And um, that was the big connection is that, you know, we should always screen for anemia in individuals that have an elevated A1C and even beyond, you know, a CBC or a complete blood count that's normal, for instance, you know, women the range is 12.3 to 15.3. We really want to see like 13.5 or greater, and you might want to make sure you don't run a CBC during your active menstrual cycle mm-hmm. or, you know, just one or two days after. Probably want to wait at least 5 days post your last day of your menstrual cycle to just make sure that you've had time to build back up your red blood cells. Um, And then, you know, for men, their hemoglobin values, we think of like 14 to 17.5. Again, kind of getting a little bit into that, like 15.5 would be ideal. We don't want too high of iron count because that also can um, be trending with inflammation in the body. Um, But generally, we tend to see a lot lower than higher. So things that we think of that drive anemia will first could be just B12 and iron deficiency. So getting those foods in by increasing your red meat consumption, using your cast iron pan, using vitamin C in your cooking when you're doing leafy greens. So like adding lemon juice to your spinach that you're sauteing, for instance, is going to shift it from that ferric to ferrous form, which is going to be much more bioavailable. And then in general, we want to make sure that we are able to digest our protein-rich foods um, and we need that ample stomach hydrochloric acid or acidity to aid in the absorption of nutrients as well. So we know like long-term use of PPIs or those that use buffers for their acidity, they're chewing tums constantly, they're high risk for deficiency of minerals and vitamins and, and iron and B12 are two of the more dominant deficiencies we see. So maybe doing the apple cider vinegar shooter in the morning, like one to two tablespoons of that, Um, using the Digest-Aid supplement, which has some HCL in there, would all be ways to make the perfect digestive environment to absorb the nutrients. And then making sure that you're having good quality grass-fed red meat, like at least four times a week, and cooking in a cast iron pan um, should really help to get those values
1: up. Yes. And then if you're a woman who is menstruating, making sure that you're taking a high quality multivitamin that has iron in it. So either our multi-defense with iron or the multi-avail mama. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Let's talk about alcohol because I think this one kind of surprises people and and, uh, catches them a little bit off guard.
2: Yeah. And it's even on like the standard, um, you know, American Diabetes Association website and, and so forth, um, where, where, Excessive drinking um, can be linked, of course, to metabolic syndrome and you know the metabolic syndrome cluster of conditions, which can be elevated blood pressure, elevated blood sugar, and elevated lipids or mismanaged lipids, uh, cholesterol issues. Um, however, there are many studies that have shown that alcohol consumption is actually inversely associated with hemoglobin A1c. So research has shown that alcohol decreases the concentrations of hemoglobin A1c independent of plasma glucose. Um, The biochemical relationship between alcohol and A1c is yet to be fully understood, but researchers have concluded that alcohol consumption is protective against type 2 diabetes, which is pretty wild, I thought. Um, Not true for binge drinking or alcohol abuse. Um, however, the um, NHANES um, study that came out and looked at that large population suggested that in uh, alcohol consumption can actually increase insulin sensitivity. So that could be one of the mechanisms for lowering A1C. Um, and we're looking at generally alcohol consumption of two um, beverages, like two glasses of wine was studied in uh, women, and um, that could be upwards of three. For men, Um, there was a study on 38,000 diabetic patients and um, they found that supporting of the clinical guidelines for moderate levels of alcohol consumption among diabetic patients as glycemic control affects incidence of complications of diabetes, the lower A1C levels associated with moderate alcohol consumption may translate
1: into lower risk for complications. Super interesting. And and of course, this is one where it's like the poison is in the dose, you know. Right. Um, This is not binge drinking. This isn't, you know, going nuts because it's a recommendation. But having a glass of wine with your meal seems like it could be favorable. And it said two. Okay. Just saying. So I I feel less
2: guilty about splitting that bottle of Dry Farm Wines with Brady at dinner. I was like, okay, well, he can have the three and I can have the two. And we're doing the perfect recommendation. (laughs) Of course, we will link Dry Farm Wines where you can add a um, penny to your order. Uh, they We've had episodes on them of basically making sure that when you are choosing wine, you aren't getting toxic wine that has glyphosate, which is the Roundup chemical that's all over so many of the California vineyards. And um, making sure also that there isn't sugar added to your wine because yes, like a a sweet Moscato or a port for sure could impact your A1C. Um, And again, I think that this is really looking at like the N equals 1. Like if you're wearing a CGM, you can watch your blood sugar response. And um, I saw pretty much no change or a um, reduction of my blood sugar when I was drinking a reasonable, again, controlled amount of wine, or actually even the low-carb margarita. And I think Mm -hmm. because that agave um, impact there.
1: Super, super interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. What about stress? This is one that I feel like we've touched on quite a bit, um, but... Super, super interesting and, and really a big dynamic yeah. impact that I we mean, can see. I think this is the biggest one. So
2: like it, generally speaking, when we're seeing people who are, again, doing the perfect things, but yet their A1C is creeping up, the first thing is like, OK, did you just get a new job? <laughs> did you? And that's where you can then think through the sleep elements mm-hmm. and some of the other elements. But did you just get a new job? Is there something happening? in you know your current world um i mean i think there's something happening in all of our world over the last sure yeah x amount of months um and i think that this is another area to um really be mindful of our children's impact as well especially those that had done e-learning for a year or you know had um, isolation or anxiety going back to school or just reintegrating and all these elements Um, you know of course it's natural to have an impact of stress but stress will both acutely and chronically drive blood sugar dysregulation and um, there were tons of studies that I looked at Um, some were really interesting where they couldn't find a trend like they did like video game studies with cgms and tried Mm -hmm. to like watch people's response i think it's really just dependent on your own emotional response to a stressor if that makes sense because like i said i've seen my most dynamic blood sugar responses only from stress not from diet even when i've tried to kind of challenge because i I guess I have pretty good insulin sensitivity and um, good muscle tone or insulin response. Um, But the stress on its own is the big driver where I actually will feel like a kind of chemical surge of epinephrine I know basically since pandemic, I haven't been able to get my epinephrine under control and I'm trying and working and moving it down, Um, but I do run high adrenaline. And so stress for me will be an immediate blood sugar surge, even upwards to like 144 was the highest that I saw that. And that was at the end of a clinic day when Stella was coming home and I was feeling that like surgy mama guilt shame of like wanting to be present and also needing to remember all the details of my medical charts and all of the pieces of the puzzle and not being able to make it happen um, so stress is one that we'd really want to be mindful of and um, we do know that there is a bi-directional link in stress depression and type 2 diabetes um, and that cortisol dysregulation ties to dysglycemia Um, the psychological stress impact um, can basically activate the HPA axis. Again, that's that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal feedback, which will spike up cortisol because everything in that HPA axis goes sympathetic versus parasympathetic. So instead of regulate, it goes into survive, which means turn the adrenals on, which that will spike up our epinephrine and um, our norepinephrine, and it'll spike up our cortisol. So we can see with the cortisol spike, increased abdominal belly fat, increased weight circumference. We can also see with that cortisol spike um, an impact then on driving further insulin resistance. We know that that epinephrine itself can directly spike blood sugar levels, and that we'll see that uh, demonstrated with the increase of triglycerides, A1c, and a reduction of HDL. And then we know that inflammation, again, can also be trending with stress response. So we'll see interleukin-6 go up, CRP go up, and then that will impact our endothelial dysfunction, which can interfere with the overall metabolic
1: impact. And all of that potentially leading to diabetes, right? If I right. managed, yeah. yeah. So I mean, I've had often, you know, again, in and this
2: is the first kind of go to when I start to see A1C up, and I kind of screen for a couple other things, and I know they're eating lower glycemic and pretty clean. It's like we need to run neurohormone complete mm-hmm. or complete plus. If it's women, um, we do complete plus. If it's men, we just do complete. Um, And it's a beautiful way also for men, often you can get them in on it when you tell them that you're going to look at their testosterone levels and they're like, okay, Um, yeah, I want to learn about that (laughs) for some reason that seems to be appealing. Um, And so, you know, we're looking at sex hormone and your four point cortisol and your DHEA, which is that marker of your adrenal output and that kind of stress resilience tolerance. And then we do look at the neurotransmitter so we can see if we really have to bring anything down. And if you don't want to invest in the panel right away, you might at least start bubble wrapping some of the stress support formulas. So like the stress manager bundle has the adaptogen boost in there, which has the panics ginseng and the cordyceps and, um, rhodiola and ginseng even specifically. So all three of those will tonify your adrenals. All three of those will aid with more favorable cortisol output so you don't get that surge. It aids with stress-induced fatigue as well. Um, But the ginseng specifically is going to have that impact on immune but also on balancing blood sugar by increasing insulin sensitivity. So that's a great hit there. The calm and clear in that bundle, um, we know that ashwagandha has been shown in in several research studies to reduce blood sugar levels. um, And that also plays a role with increasing insulin secretion and improving insulin sensitivity in our muscle cells. Um, So ashwagandha is in that Calm and Clear formula, which also, again, has that phosphatidylserine to regulate that cortisol surge to prevent. Um, And then the other formula in that three-pack is um, the GABA Calm. And GABA Calm is the bioidentical form of GABA. It is made through the same fermentation culture that's used to make kimchi. And um, it is a chewable tablet as like a stress releaser or, or valve releaser I would say if you can anticipate a stress response or you have a time of your day when you tend to have stress build up or um, you know, driving in rush hour, or you're mm-hmm. irritable even about something. Irritability is a stress response. Um, the gabacolm literally like vents out the steam train and can really help to bring the levels under control. And that was the one that I realized because I take the adaptogen boost and calm and clear like to survive. But the gabacolm layering in, I often don't feel like I quote unquote need it because I'm like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, but I found that layering in that gabacolm preemptive to that four o'clock surge really helped me to have that like, oh, like, a, like an actual release. I often like in the scenario of when Stella was like early walking and um like f- from that like 14 month to like two year mark, I had so much anxiety, like being in target with her or wherever and it was just like because she's like touching stuff and like just all over mm-hmm. and like gonna <laughs> fall and crack her skull or something I don't know and I like literally would Gabacolm was the most used in that window of my life because it helped me going from like ah, ah to like oh you beautiful child of God just doing your thing like you are safe and capable and like allowed me to have a rational mm-hmm. thought process versus an irrational high stress response to Just walking.
1: Yep. Yeah. And a super interesting one to play with, like with the CGM as well. To like be able to see that dynamic impact.
2: And not to mention that it aids with impulse control. So both in the world of like that calorie-free glass of wine, you know, but also in the world of like reaching for a treat or potato chips or something Mm -hmm. like after stress, we often want that surge of that. I was good. What do I get? And the Gabacolm can really alleviate that.
1: Okay, let's talk maybe some mindfulness techniques and and just other ways to mitigate stress.
2: Yeah, so the big thing I would say here, um, the episode will link uh, one of my favorites to date, the running on adrenaline episode. I think that this one's really powerful um, and it uh, resonates strongly with me in the world of like uh, surrendering to the present because again, often irritability or just our own disconnect of where we are and where we want to be can have a huge impact on blood sugar metabolism and a stress response. So like if you are taking on a second job and you don't really like it, but you need the money and you're like swearing the whole way there and like, burr, burr, this is so stupid and just using negative verbiage within your your mental space that still is creating an emotional response which has a physiological response and so finding peace with the present and just kind of surrendering to like this may not be the end goal but it's a part of the process and just leaving it at that it doesn't have to go all the way to poly positive but reworking your negativity into neutrality is huge for reducing that adrenaline surge of that cognitive dissonance or the disconnect of where you are and where you want to be so the same thing of maybe you had a tumultuous breakup recently and you're saying in your head I'm going to be alone forever blah blah blah, 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 whatever that is that creates such a low vibration, which creates a physiological stress response and can truly make you ill um, versus actually, and that's that whole dance of that nocebo effect, right? How thoughts can actually create physiological harm. Um, So, finding ways to just take negativity into neutrality is huge and really workshopping through that with a good counselor. Um, You know, Becky and I do a little bit of that in our um, consultations once we've really developed a relationship with a client. Um, And then, you know, being mindful of your thought patterns is necessary for that. And then if we're dealing with anxiety or a surge, fight or flight response, I'm a really big fan of the four, seven, eight breath. Um, this has been shown in research to actually send a parasympathetic signal to the vagus nerve which is the largest nerve of the body which starts at the brainstem stem and goes all the way down to the colon and that is the type of breath work where it is in through the nose for four holding for seven and whooshing out for eight um, and so you're exhaling two to one relationship exhaling at eight with a whoosh like you're compressing air out of a tire And that release um, gives your body that kind of safety valve. And that's a really great way to also harness and prevent that blood sugar spike from that stress response. Totally.
1: Okay. And then overweight and obesity is kind of an obvious one. Yeah, There's usually that kind of catch 22, um, that elevated A1C comes with it. But let's talk about that. Yeah.
2: So like you said, I I just needed to include it. Of course, I think this is the most obvious and um, we're looking at individuals that have a greater waist circumference higher body mass index greater waist to hip ratio obesity in general is going to drive insulin resistance Um, and again that's because The adipocytes or fat cells can drive um, that resistance to that lock and key mechanism of the insulin signaling. Um, And this often is going to be trending with someone that's over consuming food, not moving enough and often having high carb intake. Um, So the first line of defense would be really to get their carbs under control. And um, again, the second line of defense in diet is no naked carbs. And then I would consider really taking it to the next level and bringing in a ketogenic approach to accelerate the body fat loss, which will aid in the insulin sensitivity. This would be another great individual that could do intermittent fasting, which would be another great way to create that insulin sensitivity Um, and getting into that kind of deep Freezer reserves of body fat is a great way to reverse both the obesity and also get under diabetic control. Yes.
1: And I think, you know, within all of these root causes, you know, we've talked about berberine boost here as a tool a couple of times at least. Um, but when we're doing a carb indulgence, um, for sure in a gut cleanse, but regardless of the driver of your elevated A1C, I think it's a fabulous tool to use because it is an oral hypoglycemic. So regardless of if it's you know a food choice, regardless of if it's stress, or if it is you know gut dysbiosis. In fact, it'll have that dual um, kind of double-edged um, function, but it will lower blood sugar.
2: Right. So I think again, right, as you're digging into, if we're breaking things down, we're looking at like you know, of course obesity and carb control is the most obvious and that's where absolutely berberine boost would be an essential tool probably like the four a day um, as well as infection if it's if it's an oral or gut infection and then as we're even toggling out between inflammation nutrient deficiency or toxins and stress the berberine boost would be a really great thing to layer in Um, I just wanted to note in the world of toxins so we think of infection Of, like, a gut infection or again, the gum infection, H. pylori, we talked about. But we do see, like, with that anemia connection, lead toxicity, for instance, because lead displaces the iron. Um, We know that, like, mold toxicity in general can also be a stressor to the body. And so that could also drive up that A1C. So the last one that we just didn't totally touch on would be considering as beyond the berberine doing the 10-day detox because when you support your liver your liver is the gland that regulates your blood sugar when you're not eating which is like the majority of the time i think we obsess about the pancreas which the pancreas makes your glucagon and your insulin so these are the two hormones that tell us whether we're fed Or whether we're not fed Um, and so that glucagon can stimulate the liver to make glucose but the liver kind of functions also on its own and so when we're dealing with dysregulation of blood sugar I think another area to focus on is detoxification as you're hearing this as we're rolling down the hill of the holidays this might be a really great time to do the 10-day detox Um, we're all gonna do it with our next level keto class so if you're following us on social media you'll hear us talking about it a lot more and let's link that free 10-day detox sure. class yeah. um, I did a, a class on the YouTube channel that y'all can take for free and just kind of learn about taking your food as medicine diet to the
1: next level with a 10-day detox yes we'll do all right so I think we've covered all of the reasons that our a1c might be elevated hopefully it's given you guys some good things to kind of think on and troubleshoot I think always important to start, you know, with the basics of diet and food as medicine as your foundation. And then, you know, with functional medicine, we know that there are many areas that are often overlooked. And that's really where we can start to bring in some supplementation and, and kind of troubleshoot further.
2: Yes. So we've provided you lots of links in the show notes. You can get those always at rd.com. So maybe you take the candida gut quiz to see if that's your area you need to dig deeper. Maybe you just layer in that berberine boost because you know your A1c's up and you want to at least get it down first thing is first. Um, but checking in on all of those areas that I mentioned, is it sleep? Is it stress? Is it infection? Is it inflammation? And thinking on how you can layer to optimize and thrive in your body. And we're always here to support you with all of those resources Um, we also linked the 12-week food is medicine class which is available as an archive it's evergreen you can watch those videos as much as you would like and it really layers in functional medicine taking into account hormones adrenals thyroid detox and so much more so that's a great value and that is available for 149 and is i believe over seven and a half hours of video content so real deep dive data there and comes with the ebooks eat fat get skinny and the ketogenic kickstart
0: thank you for listening to the naturally nourished podcast visit our blog at allymillerrd.com for recipes wellness tips and food as medicine meal plans